Uh, Jesus, we pray that you would help us to learn from this and be more your people. In your name, amen. Good to see all of you here. Good to see those of you who are watching online uh, right now. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, This week, one of you sent me an email with the subject line, Super Bowl. So that got my attention. And the email said this, hey, Scott, a buddy of mine has two tickets to this year's Super Bowl plus airfare, but he didn't realize when he bought them a long time ago that it's on the same day as his wedding, so he can't go. So if you'd like to go in his place, it's at St. Peter's Church. Her name's Louise. She'll be in white. (laughs) Sort of seems like his heart wasn't really into getting married, right? He was just maybe kind of going through the motions. And in a way, that's a little bit what's going on in the text that Colin just read. God is offering the Israelites a life-giving, boundary-expanding relationship with him And instead, they choose routine, ritual, religion. Their heart wasn't in it. They were just going through the motions. And the result is a powerless faith in a puny God. And because our our lives will be no bigger than our God is, when we have a puny God, we end up with kind of puny, small lives. Now, just to be honest, sometimes I am like the Israelites. I'm not sure I want a real relationship with the living God. Just kind of going through the religious routine maybe is a little easier. A real relationship with Jesus where I'm transformed, and then he sends me into the world to make a difference. Ah, that can be kind of hard. So maybe I would rather just kind of have church as a kind of a spiritual boost in the beginning of the week and leave it at that. And maybe that's where some of you are at. I know sometimes I am in that place. Our basic attitude toward God can sort of be, God, I'll live life the way I want, right? And I'll go to church and you just leave me alone, except if occasionally you could give me some supernatural help in getting what I want, that would be awesome, God, and reflect well on you. It's like something I read a while back that said, I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, just enough to equal a warm cup of milk. I don't want enough of God to make me love a person of a different color, religion, or political persuasion. I want euphoria, not transformation. I want the warmth of a womb, not a new birth. I'd like to buy just $3 worth of God. And maybe some of you sometimes, like me, are in that place. But here's the problem. A $3 God leads to a $3 life. And that's the issue in the passage that we just read. God says to the prophet Jeremiah, stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. So you got to picture the scene, okay? Jeremiah is standing in front of the temple as people are coming and going to worship and then he just blasts them. Okay, that would be like if I stood at the door as you all were coming in and I said, woe to you, sinners, right? And then the greeter would say, welcome to Bell Press. (laughs) Which is why we do the sermon here. And then God says, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What's going on there is they thought because the temple was in Jerusalem that they were safe from enemies invading them because God would never let enemies invade Jerusalem, right? Well, God never promised that. See, that's, that's, that's routine religion. That's just going through the motions. It's, kind of, it's not a real relationship with the living God. That kind of turns God into the theological equivalent of a lucky rabbit's foot, right? Where God's job becomes to make me successful and safe and comfortable. That's what God's job is. But the problem with that is it has no power at all to transform us and to set us free, which is why God says, look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless, 
I saw a story about a 10-year-old boy named Andy who brought a friend to church. The friend had never been to church before, so he had lots of questions. So when they got a bulletin, the friend you know, asked, what's this about? The boy asked that, and Andy said, kind of explained it to him. And then there were words in the songs the boy didn't understand, so Andy would explain those words to him. And then when the preacher got up to preach, he took off his watch real conspicuously, set it on the pulpit where he could see it, and the boy said, what does the watch mean? And Andy said, not a darn thing. If we reduce relationship to God to just kind of this religious routine, I kind of go to church and maybe pray before I eat, if we reduce them down to that, our faith doesn't mean a darn thing. We're just going through the motions rather than connecting with a living God who transforms us and sends us into the world. And then when that God, because our God is smaller, our lives start to shrink down to kind of me and mine. And we start to obsess over all the little things in our life, our comfort, our safety, our security, our success. Do I have enough money? Because it just kind of shrinks down to me and mine when, when that God is the God of religiosity. And those things become our jailers. I just read a study from USC that said the poorest 20% of people in our country give as a percentage of their income two and a half times more than wealthy people. Poor people are giving more percentage-wise than wealthy people. And the study said it's because the, the more money you have, the more you look to money to make you happy instead of to relationships, which is what really gives you joy. And so that becomes this prison. But when our world gets bigger, our lives get bigger as well. And this text, there's a lot of ways, I could, there's a lot of things I could talk about. How do we step in, out of routine religion into a real relationship with the living God who transforms us and sends us? Lots and lots of things I could say about how we do that. This text points to two that we'll talk about today. And the first one is don't tame God. The text says this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. The Hebrew there literally says the God of the heavenly armies. God is no small God. He is majestic. He is all-powerful, almighty, concerned with the details of your life, but also concerned with the whole world. You can't suburbanize Jesus, though we try. My oldest daughter is a senior this year, so she's applying to lots of different universities. One of them is the UW over across the lake in Seattle. But she's not sure about that one because it's a little too close to home. She's not sure she wants to be that close to mom and dad. So a while back she said, Dad, if I go to the UW, do you promise never to come to Seattle? <laughs> no, but I'll drive right by where you live and I won't even honk, right? Metaphorically speaking, that's a little bit what we do to Jesus. Jesus, don't send me over to the scary parts of the world. Just keep me safe. Keep me in the suburbs. I want a suburban kind of a life, Jesus. But to do that, to just go to church as a spiritual pick-me-up, take advantage of great music, great programs, that's good. Nothing wrong with that. That's good. It's actually even necessary. It's just not enough. <clears throat> to stop there is like taking just one bite of a chocolate chip cookie. Doesn't that sound horrible? I can't do that. It's so unsatisfying. Some of you have heard of Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York. For years, it was a dying church. And the pastor tells a story about one day he was giving a sermon to only about 20 people. And as he preached, a man in the front pew fell asleep. And as he fell asleep, he kind of leaned over. And when he did that, the pew cracked in two and everyone fell on the floor. <laughs> the pastor said it was the most interesting thing that had ever happened in that church. 
So they took it as kind of a wake-up call, something's wrong, and so they started a weekly prayer meeting where they just prayed, Jesus, have your way with our church. We, we give up. We want to do it your way. And then they started reaching out to the people in their neighborhood, and pretty soon all kinds of diverse people started coming. Everyone from crack addicts and homeless people to Wall Street executives and politicians. And the thing just exploded. And they've, they've ch transformed a whole block, a whole neighborhood in New York. They opened themselves up to an untamed God, and so he brought them untamed lives. And their pastor, Jim Cimbala, says something I find very convicting. He says, the number one sin of the churches in America is that its pastors and people aren't on their knees crying out to God, bring us the drug addicted, the destitute, the gang leaders, the people nobody else wants whom only you can heal and let us love them in your name until they're whole. Now that's a prayer. That's a big God that gets you a bigger life. And it leads to the second thing this text tells us about how to step out of routine religiosity and get that bigger God in a real relationship with him, and that is to seek justice. And this is what this passage is ultimately driving toward, is to seek justice. Now, I want to define that word, because in our, in our culture, justice kind of means either fairness or usually it's kind of getting what you deserve, right? If you do something wrong, justice is when you get what you deserve. It's kind of like a story about a woman who was stationed overseas in the military, but after only a couple of weeks, her boyfriend sent her a letter and said he'd found someone else, so he was breaking up with her. So, so could, and then he asked, could, you, could she please send back the picture of himself that he had given her because he didn't have a copy and he wanted to give that picture to his new girlfriend. So this woman got all of the other female soldiers in her unit to bring pictures of their boyfriends and their brothers, and they collected all these pictures of all these guys. She put her ex's picture in with all the other ones and then sent this guy a note and said, please take your picture and send the others back. For the life of me, I can't remember which one you are. <laughs> now here's what I like about that story. Justice, right? Justice was served, but that is not the Bible's definition of justice. Okay, biblically, justice means there are no hungry people. There are no oppressed people. There are no marginalized people. There are no lonely people. Justice is when, the way to think about biblical justice is justice is things are going just as God wants them to be. So there's wholeness and reconciliation and freedom, right? And in this passage, God singles out three categories of people who need justice. He says, if you do not oppress the foreigner, that is immigrants, the fatherless, children without protection, or the widow, to your own harm, when we don't seek justice, it hurts us. Then I will let you live in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. And he means live in the land literally, but also figuratively as live with close connection to God and his power. Now I know that this especially this week, is kind of suddenly a politicized text, right? I mean, because immigration is in the news and all of that, which is interesting. We didn't plan it that way. We actually picked these passages weeks and weeks ago, uh, so it just kind of turned out that way. But it's, you know, in, in the news, it's very politicized, immigrants and all of that. So this is what God wanted, I guess, and I get to navigate the tricky political waters, <laughs> for which I'm grateful. Um, <laughs> but guys... This goes deeper than politics. This is just who the people of God are called to be. This is just what the church is supposed to be. 
God says following me is about more than just going to church. Yes, yes, that too. But it's also about letting me heal you and through you heal the world. And a major theme in scripture is justice to the most vulnerable people. And this is not just a verse or two in the Bible. Mm -mm. Over 300 verses. In the book of Isaiah, God says, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. In Leviticus, he says, the foreigner, immigrants, who reside with you shall be to you as the natives among you. That's a challenging verse. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Jesus says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. The call to seek justice is in every book of the Bible. We can't ignore it. This is non-negotiable for the people of God. God says, do not reduce. Yeah, you can, you can do that if you want. God says, do not reduce me down to just comfortable religion about your comfort. Do not reduce me to that. I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. I make all things new. That's why throughout history, the church has been the greatest agent of healing and change in history. In the Middle Ages, it was Christians who started hospitals because Jesus says care for the sick. And they started universities to study God's word and God's world. Christian revivals in 18th and 19th century America led directly to abolition and rights for women because of the, the Bible's emphasis on equality for all. And both abolition and later civil rights were led by Christians. Harriet Beecher Stowe, William Wilberforce, Martin Luther King. In the 19th century, most of the schools that existed had been started by Christians who deeply believed everyone should be able to read the Bible and better their lives. We are invited by God to be people who leverage every right and every privilege for the betterment of the least, the last, the lost, and the lonely. That's who our God calls us to be. And when we do that, we step out of religiosity, we get into God's bigger heart for the world, then our lives get bigger as well. A while back at dinner, my kids were talking about heaven, because that's what we talk about in my house. <laughs> it's a pastor thing. I, I don't think you'd understand, right? And one of them said, well, I hope in heaven there's a Disneyland, only a godly version. You know, there could be like a Jonah and the whale ride, you know, or like a Noah's Ark ride. That could be like Splash Mountain, you know. Okay, here's the thing. The church is not supposed to be like Disneyland. You know how in Disneyland you can't see outside the park to the city with all of its problems? That's not the church. We're called here to worship and connect with God to go there and bring God's healing. Now, I want to be clear. God is not saying, I'll love you more if you seek justice for the oppressed. He's not saying that. That would contradict the entire Bible. What he is saying is you cannot fully experience me without seeking justice for the oppressed. Without doing this, you are taking one bite of a chocolate chip cookie. And yes, it can be hard to do this. It's difficult. It's frustrating. Yes, yes, yes. That is all true. But most of my moments of deepest joy have been when I have been participating in Jesus' rescue mission. So here are two prayers for you to pray this week, and this is your homework. And you've heard these prayers before. Jesus, invade my life and wreck my plans. And Jesus, break my heart for what breaks yours. Jesus, may the things that bring a tear to your eye and cause you to pound your fist on the table do the same thing for me. Because Jesus, I don't want to be like the culture. Jesus, I want to be like you. And then there are lots of ways to seek justice. Let me name just a couple, okay? First, just notice 
Notice, a couple of weeks ago, I went to friend, uh, lunch with an African-American friend of mine, and he drove, and he has a very nice car, very nice car. And he drove, and he pulled into the valet parking. I got out of the passenger side where I had been sitting, but the attendant walked up to me and asked me for the keys to the car. Okay, my friend was driving. I'd just gotten out of the passenger side, but my friend is black. And for me, it is hard to see that as anything other than that attendant just subconsciously assuming that the nice car must belong to the white guy because that's our picture of success. But it wasn't my car. I, mean, I drive an 18-year-old Subaru that makes really weird noises. Okay, like it so wasn't my car. So I said to my friend, did you see that? And he said, no, what? And I told him, and he said, happens so often, I don't even notice anymore. But thank you for noticing. That makes me feel better. Notice and validate. Second, pick a ministry of this church. Sponsor a child in the developing world. Get involved in Eastside Academy, Jubilee Reach, Kid Reach, Auto Angels, Baby Basics, all of them are seeking justice. Yesterday, hundreds of you, 550 from five years old to 85 years old, packed 130,000 meals to feed hungry people in the developing world. It was so cool. I loved watching the little kids run around, being part of this, right? And plus, you got to wear those really cool hairnets. <laughs> Fashion statement. And if you want ideas of how you can connect, uh, just, just connect with our justice team. They've got 100 ideas. Third, advocate. In your workplace, school, neighborhood, as God leads you with elected officials, advocate. If you see people, if you see people being treated unfairly, seek to address it in your workplace, in your school, because it happens there. I've told you before about a woman uh, we heard about through one of our ministries who has lived in the U.S. for 15 years, um, always held a job, but she's an undocumented worker. Well, for 15 years, she paid the premium on her car insurance, didn't miss a payment, and then she had an accident, and the insurance company refused to pay the claim because she was an undocumented worker. Funny. That didn't seem to bother them when they took her money for 15 years, right? But suddenly now that they've got to pay, now that becomes an issue, right? So I don't care what side of the immigration debate you're on. That's just not right. That's just unjust, right? So a lawyer in our church simply made an inquiry. No threats, just a friendly little call from a friendly little lawyer. <laughs> That's all it took. And suddenly, oh yeah, we can pay that claim, right? She just needed someone to advocate for her because she couldn't do it herself. Fourth, ask Jesus daily to show you the opportunities you have where you are to bring justice. So for instance, in Menlo Park, California, where I used to live, recently a woman named Jenny was at a checkout counter at Trader Joe's and realized she'd left her wallet at home. So the woman behind her named Carolee offered to pay Jenny's bill, which was $207 which in Menlo Park Trader Joe's buys like a bottle of olive oil. <laughs> and the next day, Carolee got a thank you card and a check for $300. And in the card, Jenny said, use the extra $93 to get yourself a massage. But Carolee didn't want a massage. And she kind of felt God nudging her to do something different with that money, but she didn't really know what, so she asked her Facebook friends. One of them suggested giving the money to a food bank. So Carolee matched the $93 with another $93, sent a check to the food bank for $186. But it didn't stop there, because more and more people heard about Carolee's gift, and they started what's called the $93 Club on Facebook, where people can give $93 or 93 cents 
to alleviate hunger. They raised $100,000 to fight hunger. All of that from forgetting your wallet at Trader Joe's because she followed God's nudge. There are opportunities to bring justice every day where you are. And when we step into those opportunities, our heart expands, our world expands, our God expands, and so our lives expand. I'll close with this. When I was in seminary in New Jersey, my first wife taught math at Trenton High School, which at the time was one of the worst schools in the country. Gangs, drug activity, knifings, shootings, racial tension between black, Hispanic, and white. And I used to substitute teach there on occasion to earn some extra money. And on one of these days I was substituting, one of the white teachers said to me, and this is really hard to hear, but I think we just need to know this is out there. He said to me, quote, all these black kids are good for is having babies. If we could just figure out how to sell their babies, we'd be rich. And then he used a racial slur. That man is probably still alive. I said, that is so ugly, I don't even know how to respond to you. And he said, well, it's how I feel. Well, your feelings are stupid. <laughs> Gee. And then there was the racism of low expectations. Students sometimes waited six weeks after the start of school to get their class schedule. So they just sit around the cafeteria all day long. My wife's first name, her name was Lisa. When, when she protested, some of the administrators would say, they're poor, they're black. What difference does it make anyway? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Now, to be clear, most schools and most teachers, they're awesome, just not this one. And, and Lisa would come home and tell me these stories after stories. I would get so angry, I would put a pillow over my mouth so the neighbors in our apartment couldn't hear, and I would yell, yell words that seminary students aren't supposed to yell, right? Which I'm sure if the neighbors heard, they were like, isn't that the guy going to be a pastor, right? It was the first time my heart began to break for injustice. Now, she and I ended up divorced because we're both messed up people. We ended up hurting each other. But she was a great teacher, which I always respected. And as she prayed about this, God gave her ideas how to bring justice in her sphere of influence. She herself was half Mexican. She was the daughter of Mexican immigrants who had gotten out of poverty through education. She knew the power of education. So she would stay hours after school to help any student who wanted it. Invented ways to make math more interesting, which is hard to do. Right? She also wanted to teach life skills such as perseverance and teamwork and, and delayed gratification. So at the start of every quarter, all the kids would start with all these privileges, food and the ability to work with friends and all of that. And if they acted up, they would lose those privileges, but they could earn them back again to teach respect for their fellow students and self-respect and all of that. When a student would fail a test in order to combat their sense, their, their, their feeling that they can't affect their future, she would sit down with them and she would say, I want you to say the sentence I chose to fail that test. And they'd say, no, I didn't. You gave me the F and on and on. She said, no, no, no. You had all the help you needed available to you to learn that material. You didn't take advantage of it. No, no, I'm gonna, and this is on you. I'm, and I'm going to sit here all day and all night if I have to till you say the words I chose to fail that test. And finally, they would say those words, and she would lean toward them, and she would say, then that means that you also have the power to choose to pass the next one. And I will do whatever it takes to get you there. And as a result, some, not all, but some of her students did well in her class, learned skills that helped them in other classes, gained a sense of accomplishment, felt valued, 
She'd point them to scholarship opportunities if they were interested in college. She couldn't change all the harshness of their environment, but she could change her classroom and bring some justice. Now, all that cost her time, energy. Some, in the, some people in the administration didn't like what she was doing, thought she was being too hard on the kids, so they were on her case all the time. But you know what? She always had energy, and she always had joy for that job because she knew she was part of fixing the problem, and that just feels good. And for me, it got me out of my nice, tidy seminary god who I had reduced down to Greek, Hebrew, and theology, opened my eyes to injustice in the world and gave me a passion to heal it. And I began to connect my own story to God's bigger story. I am the son of a father who grew up very poor, homeless at times. I am only one generation removed from poverty. I barely missed it, so I don't want anyone to have to be in it. I learned more through that experience about the heart of God than I ever learned in seminary. Now, the point here is not that you all go out and be teachers. There are opportunities to bring justice in any school, any job, at the grocery store. So will you pray, Jesus, break my heart for what breaks yours. Show me the opportunities I have to bring your healing. Because here's the thing, guys. Jesus didn't die so we could go to church. It is so much bigger than that. And he gives us his heart for the world. And when our God gets bigger, our lives get bigger. And oh my goodness, does our world need this or what? Our culture is flying apart right now. And the only hope, the only hope, the only solution is if Jesus' is Jesus love as his people move into the world to make a positive difference until justice rolls down like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. As God's kingdom comes and his will gets done by his power at work through you and me, Bell Press, we are people of hope, called to bring hope to a hurting world. So Jesus, lead us to a closer relationship with you out of just religiosity and going through the motions into close connection with you. Lead us into your world to bring your healing and we will give you all the glory and all the credit. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.